Good evening, everyone. Welcome to all the teams and Mike and myself and our guest this week as uh, needs no introduction, though some of you might not recognise him, uh, Peter Bell. Welcome, Peter. Let me try and introduce what Dave and I are trying to do over the next while. We started off with me typing up something as two questions. Starts off with less than 80 days until the 6th of May. Is the Yes movement prepared for gaining Scotland's independence? And is it 100% agreed on how it will be achieved? Now, I'm going to use the 80 days because what Dave and I have done is we've invited people who are brave enough to watch the 212 Heeds and Stick with us. We've asked them to recommend who they would like to appear as a guest on the programme. You're the first, Peter. I welcome you here. Naturally. Two, two, other, two other suggestions we've had at the moment are Robin McAlpin and Davey Eyes on the Prize McGuinness. Uh, I'm in good company then. Davey's been on before and we've had other people on before that might welcome up as suggestions again and I welcome them back. So out to the audience. But why 80 days? Why am I saying there's a short period involved? Michael Russell has said, I think, to the, a meeting in the air that the Scottish government hoped to prepare and publish a referendums bill within the next six weeks and before the parliament recesses for the election period. I thought you there a moment, Mike. It's not a referendums bill. It's a referendum bill. Uh, specific to this referendum. I'm sorry, in case it gets confused with the referendums bill that's already been passed. Sorry uh, to interrupt. Oh, the Referendums Act that's already been passed. Touché, yes. Peter, I totally agree. If that happens, let's say by the end of March, which is roughly when the recess period is, there will be only 37 days left now, we've had six, we've had what, nearly seven years since the last referendum. And God Almighty, we're getting up to the point where we're having 37 days left. Mm -hmm. So, what Dave and I are going to try and do, let's say till the end of March, is have as many guests on as we can get invited and who will then say yes to being invited. So that we've got every shade of opinion on how we achieve independence that we can. Knowing in advance, and I'll use you, Peter, with respect, as a person who holds very strong opinions on certain things, which are not necessarily agreed to by other people who hold very strong opinions and things. And when the desperate situation with very few days left to try and get make sure that History remembers the people of yes at this time and that we actually achieve this country's independence. We are going to be so, so desperately sad if we don't find a way through all of this, despite the differences in opinions. I'll finish in that introduction for a second just by using an example of this, which I think is going to be correct. If we ask every single guest that appears between now and the end of March, a simple question. In the negotiations after we have achieved a vote in favour of independence, 
do you agree that one of the items on the agenda should be rem the removal of nuclear missiles from the Clyde? I would hope that the majority of people that we would have on and the majority of the yes movement would say yes to that question. Please remove the nuclear missiles as an item. So I think the yes movement understand the why of independence. What we're having difficulties over is the how we achieve it. That's where I want to try and start. Peter, can I ask you to comment? This, this is heading in the direction, it's heading in the direction of section 30 where I know you have opinions. But I want to start with Michael Russell's 11 point plan. What are your thoughts on that? And I'm gonna move on to plan B and then maybe we'll get to plan C. Plan A, uh, version 2.0, as uh, I'm calling it, uh, Mike Russell's 11-point uh, plan. It's, it's quite ludicrous. It's not a plan at all. It's not even 11-point. It deals mostly with stuff that's already been done uh, and really has nothing to do with moving <laughs> forward. Uh, and uh, for the future, there's, there's, it's, this is practically nothing about what is actually going to be done, what specific actions are going to be taken. The 11-point point plan is uh, interesting for one thing only, and that is the concession that uh, they'll go ahead with the referendum regardless, whatever the response to the Section 30 order. Uh, which makes this request for the Section 30 order even more ridiculous than it was. You know, uh, What is the point in asking a question when the answer is of no consequence whatsoever, especially when that question embarrasses the whole nation and, in fact, compromises the sovereignty of the Scottish people? One of the things that I think is happening, and I seem to have skipped to, to, to Section 30 right away uh, rather than dealing with uh, the plan, but that concession is important. And uh, one of the things that I think is going to happen is that Section 30 is going to be quietly dropped. I think it's first going to be dropped from Plan B and then from uh, Plan A. There's just going to be this recognition that it is totally pointless that uh, the, the British government has ruled it out anyway. It is just a no-go. Now, I will be delighted if and when that happens uh, because my biggest fear, actually, is that uh, uh, Boris might say yes. <laughs> he might actually grant a Section 30 order, which would be disastrous because he's only going to grant a Section 30 order to then tie the Scottish government a process that he at least partially controls, that he has significant influence over uh, and which he is able to, to sabotage. Other than that concession, Mike, uh, Mike Russell's 11-point plan is not interesting at all. Uh, it's, re it's really saying nothing. Uh, did you want me to address Plan B? Uh, well, I, plan think, I, th I think because Plan B inherently follows the same route section 30 and if that's refused then you go on to the referendum broadly speaking they're the same my fear is exactly the same as yours peter it's one of the areas where you and i have always agreed is the danger is that the more boris johnson and the planning unit that he's forming or planning units 
recognises an inevitability with the poles as they are and possibly increasing as different things happen. But he will say yes. Yes. And the one, the one thing that will come up is a threshold. They've done it before and they'll do yeah. it again. And an example of that happened on Saturday. It might, seem, it might seem remote, this, but it, to me it tells the truth. The president or the past president of the United States was being impeached. A hundred people served in the jury and 53 people found him guilty. Only 47 found him not guilty. But there was a threshold. And that <laughs> threshold meant Donald Trump wasn't impeached. We run exactly the same danger if we push for the Section 30, get a yes, and the first thing we find out is there's a threshold imposed on us. There's actually uh, a lot of ways that the minister can uh, sabotage a referendum uh, uh, using the Section 30 process. You've mentioned one fairly obvious one, the, the threshold. The franchise is another one. I mean, cut, cut out all the uh, uh, 16 and 17 year olds, and that is seriously going to damage the, the chances of getting a, a yes vote. Uh, and th there's various other th things that can be done as well. And not least, uh, certain conditions which are totally unacceptable to the Scottish government, totally unacceptable. So the Scottish government refuses uh, to uh, accede to these uh, demands. So everybody walks away from the talks. Uh, there's no new Edinburgh Agreement, Edinburgh Agreement Mark II, and therefore there's no referendum. Because by requesting a, a Section 30 order, and the Scottish government is undertaking not to, uh, to go ahead without an agreement. So if they only have to sabotage the talks, the British government only has to sabotage the talks in order to sabotage the referendum. So we would end up back where we started, you know, having to have the referendum ourselves, which is where we should be anyway. I mean, the United Nations uh, prohibits external interference, particularly by uh, what shall we call it? The, I think that it has been referred to as the parent country, which I find rather offensive. Uh, but uh, the, the, the country from, uh, from which we're seceding, although that's not strictly accurate either. This inter external interference uh, is prohibited for the purposes of the exercise of uh, our right of self-determination. The UK government is a foreign government. It's our right of self-determination. Ask yourself who the self that refers to. It doesn't refer to Boris Johnson. It doesn't refer to voters in England. It doesn't refer to the British Parliament. It doesn't refer to British MPs. It refers only to the Scottish people. So that referendum has to be made and managed in Scotland. You've gone slightly ahead of me. I want to bring in Dave. Dave? Why do you think, Peter and I have just agreed we don't like Section 30 for a whole load of reasons. Why do you think it is that the parliamentarians, SNP parliamentarians and MPs, if you use Angus McNeil and Chris McElhenney as two examples of that, why do you think it is they still want to retain Section 30? Is it purely to do with the fact that it's meant to be a gold standard? Personally, I think it's because the SNP are chicken. If you look at the 
the border protests last year. Uh, when we did that, it was oh, oh, he's kind of doing that, he's a racist, etc. etc. It was like, well, close the border, oh, we can't do that, in spite of the fact that it's already in the UK coronavirus bill. And, and then eventually they do it anyway, and it's the same thing, they don't want to be seen to be out of step too much with Westminster in case it makes them look bad for the soft nose that they're pulling across while they're alienating their base. And I, I think that's basically, I think the SNP are chicken. Let me move on, Peter. I want to, and Dave is good at this because he keeps me right on something. I want to use something you were beginning to refer to, Article 1 of the United Nations, as a principle, not as a, it will guarantee independence, but as a principle. To what happened, and this is where Dave keeps me right, over Kosovo, regaining its independence when, when Czechoslovakia broke up, how important is it when, 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 keep me right, Dave, I always get it wrong. Basically, how important is it when we're talking about international recognition that we already know there are principles which establishes that type of recognition for independent, for people who want self-determination? Could you comment on those two, two aspects for me, please? There is no issue with international recognition. This whole, whole business, this is another one that has been framed in a certain way, has been framed as being problematic for Scotland, problematic for the independence campaign. It isn't. Uh, it's not as if all these countries in the world are sitting there just waiting to find an excuse to uh, refuse to recognise uh, Scotland. Uh, and it's not as if they're all sitting there uh, waiting on the nod from uh, Westminster before they do. International recognition is, is, uh, a, is a fairly straightforward process. If the process by which the, the country restores or gains is, uh, its independence is uh, transparently democratic. That's what matters. Not local laws like Section 30 of the Scotland Act 1998. The international community does not care about that. It's whether the process is transparently democratic, free and fair. And so long as we ensure that, and the only way we can ensure that is by doing it ourselves here in Scotland under the auspices of the Scottish Parliament and with no interference from Westminster or the British Prime Minister. Uh, it can only be a free and fair referendum if it is made and managed in Scotland. And it will comply with all the principles uh, uh, of uh, international. It's actually Section 30, uh, which is contrary to... Um, uh, in actual fact, it's uh, Declaration 1415 on the, um, the, the emancipation decolonization. nation, decolonisation legislation, which people say, all right, Scotland's not a colony. But that, <laughs> of course, Scotland's not a colony. But that's the way uh, the law works. It's, uh, they, these are principles, laws for specific situations. They're principles which can be applied in different situations. There are no laws applying specifically to any situation where a country is restoring its independence because there can be no general law. Each situation is, is different. The constitutional situation is different. And the law, as the, the law pertains to that process, that law must be made in the country that is restoring its independence. 
uh, is an internationally recognised principle. Let me let me draw Dave into this, Dave. Briefly, if you can, talk us through how Kosovo went about dealing with things, because I get this wrong. You're knowledgeable on it. Kosovo, uh, basically, um, with the breakup of Yugoslavia, Serbia basically claimed Kosovo at the time. And Kosovo had a grand council that was democratically elected. Instead of them going straight away and declaring a UDI, they went to the International Court of Justice and asked for a preliminary ruling as to whether whether a UDI would be internationally acceptable, whether it would be legal, sorry. Plenty of countries replied to it, including the UK. And the UK's own statement said that there was nothing illegal in a, in, in a country of making a unilateral declaration of independence. And, and I think there were about 40 or 50 pages in this thing. But it's only the last paragraph that actually, the, the relevance of the whole ruling can be made in the last paragraph. And it would be kind of difficult for them to go back on it now uh, and say otherwise, because they were dealing with, as Peter says, like, like international principles rather than laws. And then the International Court of Justice then ruled uh, for Kosovo, and very, very quickly, they, they got internationally accepted. Sorry, and then they basically almost immediately declared uh, independence uh, and were accepted by almost everyone except Spain and Serbia for some strange reason. Uh, yeah, Serbia, Serbia was maybe obvious. Peter, you've been quite opinionated in a lot of different things, right? I don't want to take you too far into your opinions, but you made the comment that a referendum, the vote of the Scottish people for self-determination was important. Some people are raising the question of using the 6th of May as a plebiscite. I think you've said you don't think that's a good idea. Could you give us your reasons? Elections are elections and referendums and are referendums. Referendums, if they're done properly, are always binary. Uh, two choices, this or that. Uh, uh, binary. Re uh, elections never are. Elections are about a range of policies and positions uh, by uh, different parties. I mean, uh, you don't get a one-page manifesto, do you? It's, uh, there's lots of policies on different issues. Plebiscitary election, it's not that I'm opposed to it. It's just that I don't think it will provide the conclusive outcome that we need, because to do this once, or we must behave as if we're, we, uh, we must conduct ourselves as if we're only getting to do this once. So we've got to do it right. We've got to get it first time. And that means we've got to have a, get a conclusive result. I think myself that uh, uh, we've more chance of getting that in a, a referendum than in a, a, an election plebiscitary election. What I think would happen if it, if it was a plebiscitary election is that the, 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 the meaning of the result would be contested. If you recall 2014 Scottish independence referendum and especially the 2016 EU referendum, both the, the results were, uh, were not decisions. They were results, but not decisions. Uh, there was endless arguments still going on about what the vote actually means. If there's, if there's space for uh, an argument about what the vote means, then the referendum has failed. It has not been done properly. Uh, a referendum must pro produce a clear result and a clear decision. It must be obvious from the decision 
what the next move is. Uh, that's why I, th- I would prefer a referendum. And there's a- another reason, and that brings me to uh, Plan C, if you want me to address that, because it connects to this. Can, can, can I ask you to leave it for a wee while? Because I want to draw you in one of the other areas that ties in. Colette Walker have mentioned a plebiscite. Let's say that AFI go down the same road. Is there any way at all you would ever see SNP pulling together with other parties and saying, in part, this is a plebiscite leading to a decision to go for a referendum. Can you see that ever happening? No, there's, there's absolutely no political political or elect, electoral reason for uh, the SNP to uh, join forces with other parties. It simply wouldn't make sense for the SNP to do that. Uh, they're uh, too electorally strong at the moment. Uh, it just wouldn't make sense. Again, I'm going back, to, uh, to keep going back to where I was before. The point about a plebiscitary election is that you can get the same effect uh, by having uh, the... the going to have the election about. You can have the same effect by putting it in the manifesto. Uh, And in in an election, you do get a clear result on the manifesto. That's what elections are designed to do. So rather than trying to have a plebiscitary election when there cannot be, and it cannot be binary, get it in the SNP's manifesto, a manifesto for independence, and then get the biggest mandate you possibly can. Uh, and the, the mandate is uh, uh, the size of the mandate, the weight of the mandate uh, depends on the number of seats and share of the vote. First of all, you've got to get enough seats to, go, to give you a working, a safe working majority. Secondly, you want the biggest possible share of the vote, preferably over 50% on both ballots. Why I'm holding you back, and thank you for allowing me to do it, Peter, is Dave was thrust with a question and he promised the person that put the question to him he would ask it. Can you remember the question you were promising to make, Dave? If you can't, I'll put it for you. Aye, go ahead. The the question, Peter, was defend SNP 1 and 2. I'm trying not to get you waxing lyrical on list parties, but obviously SNP 1 and 2 if we have other guests on, other people are going to argue. No, it's SNP 1, Greens 2, or SNP 1, or another list party 2. The, the question put to Dave was, defend SNP 1 and 2, Peter. Well, I've already done that. It, was, it would take quite a long time to, uh, to make a full defence of it here. I've, uh, I've written articles about this and I didn't start off um, as a proponent uh, actively advocating SNP 1 and 2 but uh, when I came to think about it, I, just, I, uh, I came to the conclusion that it's not just uh, the best uh, uh, default option it's the optimum option. There are some very simple reasons. I can't go through the whole thing, but there are some very simple reasons. One is that uh, SNP 1 and 2 has kept the British parties out of power for 14 years. That is important, uh, because if the British parties regain control of our parliament, then you can forget about independence forever, because 
you're going to then have a, a parliament which will work in tandem with Westminster to ensure that. So we've got to keep the SNP in power for that. And SNP 1 and 2 has the electorally advantageous feature of being very, very simple. Nobody has to do any calculations to vote SNP 1 and 2. And it works. It's been working for 14 years. So uh, it's not up to me to justify SNP 1 and 2. It has been working for 14 years. It got us our first referendum. It got us a, a, a majority SNP government. Uh, it's, it's kept us in uh, the SNP uh, in government for 14 years. So uh, I don't have to justify that. Somebody has to argue me away from that. Somebody has to sell me the idea of giving my vote, uh, my uh, uh, regional vote, uh, to another party has done that. All they do is shout arithmetic at me. Well, politics is more than just arithmetic. There's a lot of other considerations. And I, I've reflected on it. And that's the, the main reason I cannot be persuaded to vote for one of these cunning plan parties uh, is because uh, they can't do anything. I'm voting to get the optimum outcome for Scotland's cause for the independence game. And that optimum outcome does not involve secondary parties. It's the Scottish government that matters. It's only the Scottish government that can act. So we should be empowering the Scottish government as much as we possibly can. That means voting the SNP because no other party is going to form a government. Let me MSPs, these fringe parties, can do nothing. They can do right. nothing. Anything that they are able to do, it's only because they're piggybacking on the power of the SNP. If, if they, they can't do anything on their own. So let me, let me introduce you to Dave Llewellyn. Oh, I know Dave thinks differently, but uh, uh, maybe he could be able to tell me what the, uh, these parties can do. I'll turn your question back on you. Uh, uh, convince me that these uh, parties could actually do anything. Explain to me a post-election scenario when, where they can actually do something for Scotland's cause. The reason I was going to introduce Dave, and let me just finish why that introduction, he is an example of someone who would normally vote SNP, but because of other circumstances, he is now questioning very strongly whether he would vote SNP on the constituency vote, Peter. And I don't think he's alone. Yep, and I don't think he's alone in that matter. Dave, I'll let you. I've introduced you. You go at it. Right. One. Uh, I, I started off thinking thinking that the, the, the list parties weren't a good idea, but they needed to get a certain amount of traction, uh, which they haven't got yet, and I don't think there's any chance that they're going to be able to get it now. Although ISP will be made a little bit, but at the end of the day, they're still only about half where they need to be to, to even get one seat. But things can change, and, and, and I can't go into it just now, but probably in the next week or two, I'll, I'll be able to look at that situation again and and answer that question more fully. It's a bit, it's a bit complicated at the moment. If you follow social media, I try, I try my best sometimes not to, 
there's an awful lot of people. Maybe Wings is the best place for say, for seeing this. A lot of people who were stalwart SNP are now having nothing to do with. I'm not arguing against SNP one and two. I'm, I'm, I'm neutral on it, Peter. But I'm worried that if there are people who were solid SNP are now, for various reasons, the, the Alex Salmon, Nicola Sturgeon debacle, the fact that they put money into the SNP for a referendum campaign and that money has now got to be accounted for. There's a lot of people that are questioning SNP 1, let alone SNP 2. That worries me. That's why I raised it. It's uh, Yeah, it's a serious concern. It's not uh, such a concern that we can afford to ignore uh, some of the things that are going on in the party. We, we can't. Because the things that are going on in the party are an impediment to Scotland's cause. And if we take Scotland's cause seriously, we must concern ourselves about these impediments. But I sympathise completely. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the leadership of the SNP have things up royally. That was me doing an Alex Cole Hamilton there. Did you see that? Right. Uh, everybody knows what I mean. There have been some serious errors and misjudgments and a lot of missed opportunities. There's a problem. Uh, we spend a whole bloody show talking about the problems. But at the end of it, you would still be left with the fact that only the SNP can provide the effective political power that Scotland's cause requires. We cannot move forward without a sympathetic Scottish government. And the only possibility of a sympathetic Scottish government is the SNP. Nothing that's else that's happening alters that. Uh, it's then a case of uh, your, your own conscience. But people should be clear about this. Uh, however much they justify taking their support away from the SNP, and, I, and it's very easy for them to justify it. I recognise that. But however much they justify it, they are taking their support away from Scotland's cause. They are taking their support away if they take their support away from the SNP. Because, and I will say the words, as far as this election is concerned, as far as this coming election is concerned, and as far as Scotland's cause is concerned, at the moment, it is all about the SNP. It's easy enough to say that the Yes movement isn't all about the SNP, but Scotland's cause is now. It's not a situation that I would have chosen. It's not a situation that I'm particularly comfortable with, but it's not a situation that I can change. I'm a pragmatist. I deal with the situation as I find it. The situation as I find it is that I must pile as much support as possible on the SNP at the same time as I pile as much possible to, uh, to adopt a manifesto for independence. That is the only way I can get what I consider the ideal outcome. What you're saying there, Peter, right? I, I take what you're saying. The way I see it is I'm not an actually SNP voter. I voted the SNP for independence. I voted the SNP for independence in 2012 when I came back to this country to add two votes to yes. But I'm not an actual SNP voter. Now, the thing is, at the end of the day, they've promised me time and time and time and time and time again that they're going to do this, they're going to do this. And the thing is, at the end of the day, this time I'm saying, 
you are going to have to give me something to actually earn my vote. Because at the end of the day, and all I'm asking is what you're asking for. I'm asking for show me a process. Don't show me a, a carrot like hanging in the sky. Show me a process, the A to Z, how you're going to actually hold this referendum, and I'll vote for you. But they won't. All they do is promise and promise and promise, and that's what my problem is. The fact that uh, uh, they've failed in the past, and I don't dispute that they've failed in the past. I, I uh, campaigned long and hard and, and uh, very lonely for a referendum in 2018, uh, building on the momentum from 2014 and the 2015 election. It was That was the ideal time, uh, 2018 at the latest. But that's the past. As I just said, we have to deal with the situation as we find it. As far as the uh, uh, process is concerned, David, uh, I, I totally agree with you on that. And that is what Plan C is all about. Uh, that is what the Manifesto for Independence is all about. It sets out the steps that the Scottish government, that the SNP must commit to in government. And if the SNP adopts a manifesto, as I think of it, I haven't uh, explained that yet, I can guarantee you they will return to voting the SNP, probably SNP 1 and 2, because the Manifesto for Independence is exactly what the man's looking for. And it's time the SNP leadership realised that. It's exactly what the whole bloody yes movement is looking for, including the biggest part of the SNP membership. I'm slightly smiling. I've got the impression I've put reins on you, Peter, and I don't think anyone's achieved that ever. <laughs> but I'm trying to lead you into Plan C because obviously it's something that you've... And I read what you wrote this morning. I'm going to raise it with a funny bit first and then let you wax lyrical on it. One part of it is to ask the members of Parliament to return from Westminster and be part of a national convention Two questions just in that, and I'm not being funny when I say this. I'll use Pete Wishart as an example. Do not know who orders or instruct Pete Wishart to return from Westminster to be part of a national convention. But I have my worries whether he will come back and do as he's told. More importantly, as I understand that the claim of right came out of a national convention, who would you see taking part? I'm, I know I'm only picking a narrow point, but I think it's a, an important point. Who would you see taking part in the national convention? As far as the Pete Wisher thing is concerned, well, he's a big lad. He, he can make his own decisions. If he wants to stay at Westminster, I'm too upset about that. The point of the national convention is to bring together, uh, you're asking who, who takes part, it would be based on all of Scotland's nationally elected representatives, democratic representatives. Originally, that was all the uh, MSPs, MPs and MEPs. Obviously, no MEPs anymore. More sympathetic. Uh, but it would be basically the uh, MPs and MSPs plus representatives of Civic Scotland. COSLA would be an obvious example, so that the local authorities are represented. But I don't want to go too, too deeply into that uh, Civic Scotland part of it, uh, because it would be entirely up to the Scottish Parliament to determine who was invited to serve. And the main purpose of the National Convention would be to oversee the process 
of uh, preparing a draft constitution. Uh, now, I know a lot of work, Mark McNaughton and various other people, I shouldn't start naming names because there's too many. A lot of people have done a lot of very good work on the constitution. There's a lot of material out there. I know people kind of favour an Icelandic type crowdsourced constitution, but a draft is a good place to start. Give people some idea of what a constitution might be and then they can pick and mix from that what they like best. Exactly how, how it's done is up to the Scottish Parliament working together. My reason for isolating that from Plan C, Peter, is to ask you, what is the timescale for that ever happening? It has to be within the life of the next Parliament, uh, and I would say preferably within the first half of the this, the, the first parliament, because the first part of uh, the process, um, on the five points, uh, it's a five-point thing, on yep. the five points, the first point is uh, repudiate Section 30 process, renounce it, chuck it out. That's not really part of the process of restoring Scotland's independence. That's just something that has to be done uh, so that we can get rid of of the, the folly of the previous commitment. The first part is asserting the competence of the Scottish Parliament, asserting the primacy of the Scottish Parliament in Scotland on the basis of the sovereignty of the Scottish people and the democratic legitimacy of the Scottish Parliament. That has to be done anyway. It doesn't matter how you, you approach the process of restoring Scotland's independence. You come to a point where you must assert the authority of the Scottish Parliament to uh, sanction a referendum. Uh, because if a referendum's not being sanctioned by Westminster, and it bloody well shouldn't be, and isn't going to be by the, the looks of things, then it has to be sanctioned by the Scottish Parliament. And in order to sanction it, the Scottish Parliament has to have the power to do that. Where is that power going to come from? Yeah, other than the people of Scotland. Through either a, a, a referendum or a, an election uh, on a manifesto. The Parliament uh, must assert its power. Nobody can give the Parliament that power other than the people of Scotland. The idea that that power can be acquired from some other place uh, is a, a nonsense. It cannot be acquired from some other place. Power is uh, never given. Power is taken. Uh, so uh, that is the actual first step. Uh, th then the uh, National Convention comes next, and then the next two are tentative. There's, there's various options, but what I said is that uh, the Scottish Government would then propose the dissolution of the, uh, the Union, uh, subject to a referendum, if Parliament accepts that, it goes and the people vote in a referendum and there you go. The stipulation that the referendum is entirely made and managed in Scotland, that's kind, that's kind of the brief way of saying it. I think everybody will know what I mean by that. Two quick comments. One, when you're talking about the authority of the Scottish Parliament, 
I'm going to chuck in also the permanence of the Scottish Parliament. Uh, well, the, the two things go together. You can't separate those two things. If, if, if the Parliament if, if it asserts its primacy, it also asserts its permanence. But you, you're quite right. It's as well to state that. Primacy and permanence. Your hope is that there might be a spring conference and you might be able to raise some of these things. And I think your second hope was that now Scotland are having a conference on the 6th of March. Can I ask you for your thoughts on now Scotland? Yeah, I'll say first, well, uh, I wouldn't describe it as a hope that the uh, spring conference, if it happens, I don't know, I wouldn't describe it as a hope that uh, we'd be able to address these issues. Uh, more of an aspiration. It should address these issues. It should be the opportunity to finalise the, the, uh, the manifesto for the membership to feed into the manifesto. Whether it will be or not, I, I don't know. I don't know whether the, the, the present leadership has the bottle to uh, listen to members. I would uh, very much restrict that debate to the issue, the, to the constitutional issue and uh, constitutional issue and what goes in the manifesto. Uh, I would really like to prevent people going into side issues about particular policies that the Scottish government uh, is dealing with, shall we put it that way, which may be <laughs> somewhat unpopular. Keep it strictly to the constitutional issue, otherwise it will not come to any conclusions. And that applies to now Scotland as well. The idea of now Scotland, uh, as I understood it and as I suggested it, uh, I worked long and hard, campaigned long and hard, uh, insisting that they, in order to get the SNP to change its approach to the constitutional issue, there had to be pressure from both inside the party and outside. I'm not sure whether he uh, objects to both pressure from inside the party and outside, I'm pretty sure that there's some in the leadership object to any kind of pressure at all. But uh, I think that there, had to, there has to be this pressure. And the, the only way the, both these groups, although they're all part of the Yes movement, every SNP member is a, a part of the Yes movement, so we, we shouldn't really think of, of them separately. But they work differently. If you're a member of the party, you can do things in a certain way, and there's certain things you're not allowed to do, most of which I'm doing. Uh, and then there's the uh, the Yes movement, which can do things in an entirely different way, which is fine. But unless uh, there's a unity uh, within and cooperation between uh, these groups, this SNP leadership very resistant uh, to any voices of dissent. And, uh, and that's the first barrier that we've got to break. It is, in a sense, not in the sense that it's often meant, but it is, in a sense, true to say that the SNP is actually a barrier to the uh, Scotland's cause at the moment, an impediment. But it, it's not from any malign reasons. I say, yeah, Dave got it in one, really, when he said that they're fear. I, I wouldn't put it like that. What I would say is that the, Nicola Sturgeon and a lot of people around them, uh, the kind of politics that's required for us to restore our independence. It can't avoid confrontation with the British state. The people in the SNP 
a lot of them, actually most of them, are actually there because they don't do confrontational politics. We kind of like the consensual politics that they did. And I don't think it occurred to any of us at the time that uh, that wasn't going to work when it came to the actual nuts and bolts, the actual process of restoring Scotland's independence, that we would need politicians who could uh, get into the bear, bear pit and fight and fight hard, politicians that were prepared for that kind of confrontational politics. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon and the others just aren't up for it. They just aren't up for it. Some, like so Mike Russell, I would have thought Mike Russell would be up for that, but I'm sure he won't take offence getting on in years. I mean, he is looking at uh, at retirement and perhaps things will be different once he's officially retired. But, uh, you know, it may be that he's looking for a quiet life. We know certain other people who are looking for a quiet life. But unless we get some some politicians in the upper echelons of the SNP that are prepared uh, to do some confrontational politics, we're not moving forward. And you're talking about someone that confronts issues. Mr Llewellyn, can you follow on from that, please, with your own thoughts? What the SNP need is somebody like Farage did to the Conservatives. They need somebody from outside to come in and basically whip everything up. And I know who that should be. I suspect we all know who you have in mind, Dave. Whether that's actually possible, whether that's actually desirable, or not, I, I, I'm not sure. Possibly, uh, but yes, there, there's there is a need for leadership, a need for for strong leadership. I always hoped and uh, initially expected that that strong leadership would come from Nicola Sturgeon. She has shown that strong leadership in relation to the the, the pandemic, in relation to that issue. She has shown very effective leadership. But there's a big difference between that is a managerial role, big difference between that and the kind of confrontational politics uh, that is going to be required once we go toe-to-toe with the British. Uh, That's a fearsome beast. Yeah, That's my last item on my agenda, Peter. Even though we all disagree with each other and can't find the way through to independence, what I'm fearful of is very simply is that the Westminster establishment, the power of the British state, is going to agree with itself 100% on how it's going to stop independence. And that, to me, is where the real difficulty comes in. We have got to be able to withstand everything they throw at us. We can't do it if we're all going down different roads. That's how we get there. I would agree up to a point. I suspect that the British state, the, the people behind it, the, the people who, who do the strategising, etc., which is certainly not Boris Johnson, have learned lessons from the first referendum, uh, the first campaign. We should have learned lessons from it as well. We didn't. The SNP certainly didn't. There was no proper analysis uh, of the, the first uh, referendum campaign. Uh, we got a few people saying, oh, uh, we've got to do better like next time. We've got to work harder. We've got to improve the message. You know, it's all meaningless waffle. You know, you look at the practical things that you did right and the things that you did wrong, and more to the point, 
you look at what your opponents did, especially if they were the winners. You want to find out who won a referendum, look at the winners. And there was a lot that could have been learned, and I fear it hasn't. I suspect the, the British state has uh, learned some lessons, and I think we're expecting their, as you've said, Mike, that it's going to be Project Fear times two, you know? And I think there will be an element of that. But I think what they've also uh, learned is that the, the, the happy, clappy, positive campaigning that the Yes side did in, in the 2014 referendum actually worked as well. Uh, these people who say that the campaign must be positive, 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 positive all the time, they're cutting out half your campaign because the two things work together, positive and negative. The analogy I've used is, is saying that we uh, mustn't uh, use negative campaigning, which is not the same as dirty campaigning, by the way. Uh, we, sh- we shouldn't use uh, negative campaigning. It's like uh, telling a general that the night before uh, a to uses artillery in case the noise disturbs the neighbours. We're not allowed to use a negative campaigning in case some people go, hmm, isn't that terrible? Uh, yeah, well, some people will. There is no one message that's going to appeal to everybody. Uh, we should have many voices putting this message out in different ways, talking to people in different voices. The idea that there is one magic form of words that's going to Pull everybody on board is a total nonsense. Some people will be uh, attracted by this positive case. You know who these people are? Those people are the 45% that we got in uh, 2014 and the 50, 52, 53% that we've got now. Uh, A number which has grown without any kind of campaigning at all. It's thanks entirely to external to the independence campaign. Those extra points have come from there. Nothing from campaigning for independence. But that means that we can't rely on it. We can't rely on it. Because whatever factor has caused it, that factor could disappear. The Boris factor. Well, what happens if Boris is replaced? And it's some lovable character that goes in in his place. It's some lovable, reasonable-sounding character, which, let's face it, wouldn't be difficult after Boris Johnson. A lot of the, the points that we, we still have to get, the percentage points that we still have to get, these are people who aren't interested. They're not even listening to your happy, clappy message. They're not listening to any of your uh, thousand and one visions for a, a Scotland, uh, an independent Scotland. Get them angry. Get them looking at the union and what the union makes means for Scotland. Get them angry about that. Appeal to that side of it. With a, that is what negative uh, campaigning means. You appeal to all aspects of human nature. Why you wouldn't do that is a mystery to me. Uh, although uh, that too is explained by uh, antipathy to negative campaigning and confrontational politics in general. They just aren't built for it. The confrontational bit is something I agree with you, Peter. I also think there's got to be radical positions put forward. That's why I started with Trident. Westminster and the state know that that is a geopolitical question. 
The removal of Trident missiles from Scotland is geopolitical. We know that Obama stuck his oar in because of that reason. There are people watching. It's when I come on to the international recognition. At the right level, internationally, people know that Scotland are heading for independence. That's why the British state has to fight us tooth and nail. Some of what we have to do has to be extremely confrontational and very explicitly radical, such as nuclear missiles. It's not because I've not joined Navy, not nuclear, but that to me is one, one example. That's why I started with it, of where I've got no doubt that that is something that the Yes movement can get behind. And we have to put forward ideas of that type which can get the Yes movement working together. That's policy. And if you start talking about policy, you will never unite the Yes movement. The Yes movement is diverse. Think what that means. That means that there's all sorts of shades of opinion in there. Of a leftish bent, I would say, but uh, all shades of opinion in there. There are pro-nuclear people in the Yes movement. There are people who uh, still think of it as a deterrent, as there are in the SNP, although they maybe don't make their voices heard. So if you start talking about policy, even a policy as apparently to us obviously uh, worthy as uh, getting rid of triment, you will have disagreements. And if you're, wanting, if you're going for unity, then <laughs> and it ain't going to happen. The only thing that the ES movement can unite around is the uh, idea of ending the union. That is the, the thing that we all want. Every single one of us wants to end the union. So that is what we focus on. That is the, the, the yes movement can coalesce around that. If the SNP in their manifesto focus on that, the process by which they will end the union, then the whole movement will unite, membership will unite, will be on the SNP manifesto. In that manifesto, they will get a huge mandate for it, a, a safe working majority uh, in the Scottish Parliament. And hopefully, ideally, over 50% on both ballots, uh, because it's a, it's a super mandate that we want, not a super majority. A super majority can't do anything. It may look pretty in the headlines. It may be something to get excited about on the day. But then when you sit back watching to see what it does, you're going to be very disappointed because it does nothing. A super mandate on the other hand, lends weight. After you've got a simple majority, it's a super mandate that lends weight uh, to that uh, that majority. That That's what makes it heavier. That's the clout, the kind of clout that you want when you're going in to confront the British state. When you're saying about uh, the super mandate, how many mandates to me? You, you can have as many mandates you like if somebody's not going to have to push it. And the problem is at the minute, they won't push it. It's this, we need somebody to go and pick a fight rather than sit and uh, negotiate what the nobles are going to get sorted for a change. Right. Oh, this thing about uh, past mandates. The thing is, uh, they were the wrong mandates. They're obviously the wrong mandates because nothing happened. And we're all blaming the SNP leadership. And sure, they've got to take their share of the blame. But we, as party members, we've got to take our share of the blame as well. We are supposed to be the party. So yeah, we have to take responsibility for what And they were the wrong mandates. 
we were giving them a mandate to request a, a Section 30 order. What the hell were we thinking about? I mean, that should never have happened. What I'm talking about now is giving them the right mandate, and it will, because it's a mandate, it's a, it's a mandate that they cannot wriggle out of. That's the important thing about it. It is an actual commitment to take certain actions, not including asking for a Section 30 order. Can I put the reins back on you for a second and let Dave... I would, I would agree with you, Peter, honestly. Right? For me, they show us this process. They show us this process for A to Z and to be in control of the process, Alvo SMP won. Are you listening? Are you listening, Mike Russell? <laughs> right, right, OK. I, I, absolutely. That's all I need. The problem is that I've got just now is trust. And the trust thing has got to do with a lot of things as it goes. But at the end of the day... I do not trust the present leadership at all, one bit. I've got my reasons, Peter. I can't go into it now, but it's all going to come out shortly. I think in general, you, you use the word trust, but I think uh, if we were to, talking about the um, the SNP membership and the, uh, the Yes movement as a whole, uh, I, I would prefer to use the uh, word confidence, uh, or rather the lack of confidence. I don't think... Let's put it this way. There seem to be a hell of a lot of people who have lost confidence in the leadership. I, I could probably get chucked out of the party for saying these things, but hell, the hell with it. You know, what's my party membership compared to this issue? We're talking about Scotland's very existence here. So my party membership is a, a small thing. The leadership have to regain that confidence. They've got to regain David's trust. They've got to regain the general confidence uh, of uh, the, the movement. What is happening is that the polls are showing that they have the confidence of the electorate, no. but they don't have the confidence of the uh, independence movement. So their confidence kind of overwhelms our lack of confidence. And the, the, the leadership are more impressed by the, the confidence shown by the uh, uh, electorate in general. Gonna have to get it through their heads that they have they win they have to win back our confidence. They won't even let the membership debate stuff because they're terrified that they lose control of it. You've had your conference, you've had your assembly, and both times debate has been stifled. It's been coming from the membership and indeed from the NEC. And that is that's there are massive issues in the party itself because their voice is not allowed to be heard. It has not been heard in the past. The, the, the party have been seriously uh, guilty of this. And it kind of happened without us noticing because we trusted the leadership. It kind of happened without us even noticing. If you're arguing that uh, the past dictates the future, that because things happened a certain way in the past, it must be that way forever, then why in the independence movement? Because that's all about changing things. I've accepted the fact going to be an SNP government uh, that uh, is the, the political agent of restoring our independence. It, right. it has to be. It's that or nothing. All right. Some, for some people, nothing is looking like a better option at the moment. I don't get that at all. It's, uh, but we have to change the party in order to change the, the direction of the independence movement, just to get it moving again. We haven't moved uh, in all that time, but I really am trying to stop complaining about the mistakes and the misjudgments of the past 
uh, and try and prepare the party for the future. That's what I want to do. And yes, they're not listening. What does that mean to me? What does that tell me? It tells me we have to shout louder. We have to shout so loud that they can't not listen. I want Dave to have the last word in this, but I hope, number one, as part of what Dave and I are trying to do by getting someone like yourself on, Peter, someone that will hold different views and do that over the next, say, six weeks as hard as we can. We'll put out the invitations. Remind people watching this, if you want someone on, Dave and I will be happy to invite them and we'll maybe get them on. But Dave, I've finished everything I wanted to do. Peter, I hope we've given you a fair hearing. I really do. I feel uh, I, I will remember something after we go off air, as you always do. But uh, yes, fair hearing, certainly. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It has been uh, very stimulating, very stimulating. Dave, my friend. Hi, thanks, thanks, Peter. I'd say, like, uh, there are a lot of different strands and a lot of different voices. And some people get heard more than others. Some people can shout more than others. But it's like well, I say usually at the end of every show, we're all going to vote yes. We've all got different ideas how we're going to get there. Next week, we're hoping to have a, a live show uh, going out uh, because uh, Mr. Stammons lately have given his evidence at the Parliament inquiry. And we hope to be joined in by Denise Finlay, Barhead Boy, and Pilar Fernandez. He's going to be able to interact live with us uh, as that goes out. So thanks very much for coming along, Peter. And uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>